Hey guys, it's Callan. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Imperfect Me Women. Today's guest is Elise Guest, which the irony is not lost on me that her last name is Guest and she gets to be a guest on my podcast and I'm so excited to have her. We met through a mutual podcasting group, so she has a podcast of her own, which I talk about in the episode, but I feel like her life story is so relatable and just there's so many wonderful things that she talks about and I'm so excited for each of you to get to know her. So she's going to talk about it a lot better than I would. So I'm just going to get right to it and I hope you enjoy the episode. Elise has a bachelor's and master's in history, and she's pursuing a PhD in education to evaluate the quality of university professional programs. She calls herself a historian at least once a week, but she hasn't actually worked in the area for a decade, which makes her sad. She's a perma-single, which is how she refers to the fact that she loves being single, and she has no kids. I love that, by the way. (laughs) Elise owns her home, which is a 140-year-old place in a small farming community in southern Ontario. She's the co-host of Rabbit Holes podcast with her BFF, Andy, and each week they both look at a weird corner of the internet and share what they find. She's a proud fur mom to Maggie, short for Margaret Thatcher, and Welly, short for Wellington. (laughs) Those (laughs) names are awesome. (laughs) Those dogs probably have the best personality ever. Well... Well, they're cats. Oh, well, see, that's even better. I feel like I should have imagined them as cats rather than dogs. Yeah, but the problem is, is Maggie is scared of everything. So very un-Margaret Thatcher of her. Oh, no. And uh, Wellington is just really dumb and useless. Very (laughs) un-Wellington. So... Well, you know, you gave him a name to aspire to, you know, gave him something to work towards. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome. Well, thanks so much for kind of letting us get to know all of those different parts of you. Why don't you go ahead and just get started with the story that you came here to share today? Sure. So when I read up about your podcast, and I saw what you were doing, I was so amazed. I think women need to talk more about the parts of our lives that aren't pretty and aren't Instagrammable and that really at the end of the day hurt when they happen and then make Mm -hmm. you come out stronger on the other side. So first of all, thank you for doing that service for the women out there. (laughs) We all need this on a regular basis. Uh, It's a privilege for sure. And so when I was kind of thinking back as to what I hate to say a defining moment because I think every moment can be defining depending on how you look at it and you approach it. But mm-hmm. one moment that changed the the course of my life for sure was a very rainy, cold day uh, in February 2014. So I don't know if you're familiar with Ottawa. Not super familiar. Yeah. So it's the capital of Canada and it sits in a valley. And we have, I like to say, two good weeks of weather a year. One is in the spring and the other is in the fall. <laughs> uh, and the rest of the time, it's either too hot or too cold and it's snowing or raining. So that morning, it was way too cold, and it was raining, and I was leaving for work. And on my way, I slipped on a patch of ice. Well, the whole driveway was ice. And I fell. And on the way down, I both felt and heard a pop in one of my knees. Uh. Yeah. I hit the ice, and I was just lying there. I don't think I passed out. It was a very close thing. And Mm -hmm. the pain was just unbearable, and the shock of it. 
And I was lucky that I had a couple neighbors who were also leaving for work. I was living in an apartment at the time and they helped me up. And as soon as I tried to put weight on the knee, it just buckled. And Mm. I remember saying, oh my God, I've broken my knee. And so the, the neighbors helped me into the lobby of the building I was living in. And I sat there waiting for the ambulance and the ambulance came and got me and took me to the hospital and the doctor looked at it and said, it's not broken, but there's nothing I can do for it. Go home and try Mm -hmm. to see your general practitioner as soon as possible. So that's what I did. The problem was at the time I was on the start of a slide into a depressive episode Mm -hmm. for about the two months preceding the accident from about Christmas onwards. I felt it. And I had been diagnosed with depression and anxiety about five years earlier and I had okay. So you were kind of familiar with what that cycle looked like for you. Yeah. So it started kind of late high school, early university, where I'd have these really dramatic mood swings, the ups and downs. And when it got to the point where the mood swings were happening daily, like one day I was up, the other day I was down, I talked to my doctor mm-hmm. and she put me on an antidepressant and it worked. It was great. Awesome. Dialed in five years, perfect. And then at the time, my parents were splitting up. I was in my late 20s, mid to late 20s. My parents were still building up. My godmother and aunt was dying of cancer. Mm. I was dealing with workplace harassment from a bully there who was at a manager's position. And every morning, I had to tell myself, you have to do it. Mm -hmm. You have to get up and you have to go into work. You don't have a choice. Every morning. It was terrible. And then the fall happened And the body was no longer willing, so the mind just gave up. Mm. Like Because I I was forcing myself physically to do it, and as soon as I couldn't physically do it, the mind was just like, I'm done. That's the point, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. So I saw my GP a couple days after the accident and told her I needed time off work. I don't know if your listeners are mostly Canadian or American or where, but... I think most of them are American. We've got a few Canadians there. So if your American listeners aren't familiar, the Canadian healthcare system is amazing. We mm-hmm. have universal healthcare. So seeing my GP was free. All the preceding incidences that I'll tell you about were free to deal with. <laughs> Super jealous, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we also have a wonderful system for uh, employment insurance. So your first 45 days when you're hurt and off work, you don't get paid unless you have saved up sick time and annual leave from your employer. After 45 days, though, our social safety net kicks in and you get 55% of your income paid for by the state for a three-month period. So I got hurt and needed time off work to recover both physically and mentally. My doctor started messing around with the uh, dosages of the medication I was on. She added some extras. I had been the type of person who hated taking a daily pill, but it got to the point where I just, I needed help and I knew I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't move. So I spent the next four months on my couch at home, just Mm. a wreck, like crying. Anytime anyone asked me, like, are you okay? Like just yes. And then bawling as soon as they weren't looking or like I hung up the phone, I was dealing with uh, counselors on the phone because I couldn't go see them. So I was having conversations, which was great. I learned a lot about myself through that process. And then the rehab started for the knee. So seeing a physical therapist to get to walking again. So what had actually happened, as I found out, because I needed to have surgery to repair it, the ACL had snapped. The meniscus got 
damaged. The other two ligaments in the knee were moderately damaged as well. And there was um, substantial bone bruising is what the surgeon's report says. So for a split second fall, it was impressive. (laughs) Yeah. So then did you have to get surgery on it? You said surgeon yeah. report. So again, Canadian healthcare system is very uh, supportive and it has its flaws, but uh, everything worked out. I ended up getting an MRI within two months of having the accident, mm-hmm. which is a pretty good turnaround, even for Canada. Right. right. Uh, I had to do it at like 1130 at night at the hospital because they run <laughs> those things 24-7, but I didn't care. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> I'll go. And then I went back to work. In July, early July, my aunt passed from cancer about two weeks after that. Mm-hmm. And by September, early September, I had my surgery to do the repair. Wow. It was a mess. Like, it was the year from hell. It got to the point where, yeah. like, friends would come over and say, like, it can't get any worse. It'll get better. And I, like, I had to embargo the sentence, it can't get worse. Because every time someone said it, the universe was like, ooh, challenge accepted. (laughs) What Uh else can we throw your way? (laughs) And something terrible would happen. So my kind of life philosophy shifted from it can't get any worse to it will end eventually. Mm -hmm. That is my new motto. People say it can't get worse to me. And I'm just like, don't say that. Say it will Mm -hmm. end eventually. So at the end of the day... I went back to work after four months off and it was too early. I knew that as I was going back, but my um, employment insurance had run out. I was fighting with our long-term insurance people and they wouldn't grant me long-term disability. Mm-hmm. So it was work or starve. <sighs> so I had to go back to work. I knew I was going back too early. I didn't have a supportive work environment going back. My boss at the time is very old school. So sheaves of the opinion of you work nine to five at your desk and you should be grateful that you got the time off that you got but you're done now you have to come back to work Mm. my aunt passed we had to schedule the funeral around my boss's schedule so that I didn't miss extra time because she didn't like that idea and I already had so much time off and it was just one body blow after the other and then to go into the surgery process and if you've never had knee surgery it is not fun (laughs) I was supposed to have six weeks off to recover I got three again because my boss wouldn't accommodate the extra time so I had one complete week off where I had to do nothing after the surgery and then slowly coming back to work but working from home but if you're working you can't be on pain medication right so (laughs) like it was it was just like one show after the other yeah. feel part of the expression oh no yeah um, <laughs> I mean that's what it sounds yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of it the knee got repaired the uh the whole incident showed me that I could survive I had gone through life before that just like my mom at one point called me a suburban princess like <laughs> nothing really touched me like okay. I had a very comfortable upper middle class uh, upbringing. I went to a great university that my parents helped paid for. I moved into an apartment that my parents helped paid for. It was, I never had to really make a decision. Big decisions were kind of made for me coincidentally. Like I got laid off from my first job. I didn't quit my first job. So that was a decision taken away from me. I didn't have a choice about going to the university. If I wanted 
the money my parents had set aside, I had to go and I had to go on their schedule. Um, mm-hmm. And then all of that went away. It was just, mm-hmm. I couldn't control what was happening. No one could control what was happening. And it just, it was what it was. And it showed me that I could make decisions because I had to make a series of decisions. Like, was I going to go back to this job? Was I going to right. go look for another job? Was I going to keep fighting the long-term employment battle and get disability? So I made a lot of decisions that I had never had to have made before. And it showed me that I could, and it showed me that I could survive what was coming mm-hmm. my way. Yeah. I mean, you touched on so many good things there, but I really liked when you talked about that it will end eventually versus it could get Mm -hmm. worse. (laughs) Because I think we do people such a disservice, especially when we're trying to be empathetic to them. Mm -hmm. When we sit there and say, oh, just you don't have it that bad. I mean, like it could always be worse. So they're trying to help you feel better, which makes sense. But really, they're just uncomfortable with your own pain, right? They're uncomfortable sitting in that space with you. And so they're looking at you and saying, "Uh, let's get out of this space. We'll we'll try to think of things that could be worse to make ourselves feel better, right? Yeah. Whereas this perspective of, well, it it could get worse, actually. (laughs) And it might get worse. And I have no control over that. But it will end. I really like that. I mean, it's it's life. You you can't look at it any other way. And I do battle with right. myself sometimes too. Like you don't have it that bad. Mm-hmm. You live in a great place. It's safe. You are pretty cushy, even though this has happened to you. But then I think back, and I'm just like, no, what you were going through was an effing nightmare. Like, yeah, just because somebody has it as bad or worse doesn't negate what you are experiencing. And we have to remember that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think Brene Brown, are you familiar with her? Yes. I'm reading one of her books right now. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. She touches on that quite a bit about it's okay to acknowledge your own suffering and your own experience. Mm -hmm. You don't have to sit there and compare it to other people's or measure it against other people's. And it's okay to just sit with that for a minute. Absolutely. So yeah, I totally agree with that. So you mentioned that kind of going through this experience helped you to realize that you can survive, that you can get through versus the more cushy lifestyle that you had before where people made those choices for you. Was there ever a moment in this experience that you felt like, I'm not going to get through this? Every moment. From the Mm -hmm. moment that I hit the ice to waking up after surgery, like, that's what the depression does for you. (laughs) It tells you that you can't do it and you won't do it and no one will help you through it and no one will understand or be supportive. So while I was battling the physical injury, I was also battling the chemical imbalance in myself, in my brain Mm -hmm. and having to fight through that and learn to ask for help was really hard for me. Like I hate inconveniencing anyone. I will like, ask my dad for a favor and couch it in oh but if it's inconvenient for you in any way don't worry about it I'll sort it out it's okay like please like, if uh-huh. you have, like he's my dad <laughs> he, right. should, he should really be okay with I don't know like coming over and picking up the mail while I'm out of town for a week but I feel uh-huh. so bad asking for help so it's it was that kind of thing that like, I had to learn to push through and be accepting of and understand that it will end and to not believe the depression and to not listen to it. 
Right. Yeah. That's kind of my, was my next question. How did you, how did you find a way to do that? Cause I think that's, that's the hardest part is to interrupt that thought pattern in your mm-hmm. brain when you've got all of those thoughts happening and depression's really throwing it at you. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like you were able to interrupt that? So there's two things. The first is the medication. Mm-hmm. I'm a firm believer that there is absolutely no weakness in going to see your doctor to get put on medication for depression and anxiety. Absolutely. It is a chemical imbalance in your body, no different from diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, cancer. It is a medical condition that you have no control over. 100%. So you just have to do it. Yeah. So as my doctor was kind of fiddling with the dosages and moving things around, and I went through a couple iterations of that uh, to try to line things up. I was also acknowledging the past. And I think that's another thing. I don't think we're self-aware enough in our society and our culture Mm -hmm. to understand what's happening today is influenced by what happened yesterday and all the other yesterdays. So a big chunk of my depression, and I worked this out with the counselor, came from the fact that I was a yes person. I will do anything for my friends. Like, once you are my people, you are my people for life. If you need to bury a body, I'm your first call. (laughs) And people know that because I'll just say yes. Like, I will tell you I hate doing this, but I will tell you that as I dig the hole. (laughs) It it is what it is. Uh So, and then that morphed into always saying yes at work and always saying yes to acquaintances and not having boundaries. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I learned boundaries and what they were and what they meant and how to put them up and how to stand to them that's when everything clicked and that's when things got immeasurably immeasurably better undoubtedly it was a combination of the medication being dialed in properly and learning to know what my lines were and to force people to stand at those lines and to force myself to force people to stand at those lines right yeah I think it's super fascinating. And I often find this with clients that the people who are the yes people are also the people who are really worried about inconveniencing somebody. Cause you yep. mentioned that earlier that you were, that you have a hard time mm-hmm. asking people for help, but anytime somebody's going to ask you to you for help, that's mm-hmm. a lot easier for you to do, which is an interesting thing. I think it's, it's the giving, like you give right. so much of yourself as an, as a yes person that the thought of inconveniencing and taking back is an anathema to who you are on the inside. And you can't right. like, I can't. you feel guilty. Yes. Yeah. Like who am I to take? I can only give. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you were able to, through therapy, figure out a way to give yourself permission to say, actually, no, it's okay for me to have my own needs and my own wants. And I can yep. set boundaries surrounding those things. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. So being able to set those boundaries kind of led you to a more healthy place as far as this depression goes. Absolutely. It it made me a much stronger person just in all aspects of life. Mm-hmm. And that strength kind of, like I mentioned at the same time, my aunt was dying of cancer and I was there the night that she died. Mm-hmm. And I think watching a loved one dies, uh, dying, it's, it's a pinpoint it focuses you yeah so much that the bullshit falls away Uh like you wanted two creams and one sugar and i gave you one sugar and two creams like (sighs) in your coffee like i don't 
care. Go get your right. own. Like, right. this is my boundary because what you are saying is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And so I read over the over the holidays, I was reading um, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Um, <laughs> good book, I have heard. Yeah. I haven't actually read it yet, but I have heard good things. It, it was funny because I think that book would have landed very differently with me before this whole incident because mm-hmm. I needed to learn to not give a Right. And then after this happened and after I learned my boundaries and after I learned that it was okay to say no and where to say no, I already lived that life. Like, right. I already know what not to give and which ones to give and can hone in and focus on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So being able to go kind of going through that deeper experience, I think in general, death can do that for us because yeah. or there's no way that you can go through that with somebody that you love and not be changed on a deeper level because of that. And she was my first big loss. I was very right. lucky. I made it to 25, 26 without losing a close family member. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the two weeks before I went back to work after my accident, I was actually staying at my dad's place to kind of watch over her and take care of her while she, he was on vacation. Cause as a caretaker of a terminally ill person, you need time away, right? Like right. if you were yeah. in that boat, acknowledge that fact and don't feel guilty about it. So he was off on vacation, which neither, neither my aunt nor I begrudged him for. And mm-hmm. um, so I got to have those two weeks with her before she passed and it was so casual and we knew the end was coming. We didn't know how close it was. She was really good. Well, she might have known she was really good at hiding how bad Mm -hmm. it was so I got to spend that time with her and (laughs) what I I still think about this and chuckle every time I do um she had been a lifelong smoker and when she first got cancer it was lung cancer Mm -hmm. and no it was uh, liver cancer and we were talking about it I looked at her I'm like you kind of would have put your money on the lungs right and she's like yeah I really would (laughs) have So she gave up smoking before she knew really how bad it was. Uh, Mm. In those last two weeks, she must have known it was coming down to the end and she was really stressed about it. So she comes Mm. to me really abashed one day and goes, would you mind taking me to the gas station so I can get a pack of smokes? I'm just, I'm feeling really anxious. I need to calm down. Uh And I looked at her, I'm like, Carol, if you want me to go online and figure out how to cook you meth, I will cook you meth. (laughs) at this point it so doesn't matter yeah Yeah. (laughs) this is where we are now (laughs) so being able to have that bond and that relationship with her so close to the end just yeah it really hammered home what was important and what wasn't and so to Mm -hmm. watch her pass and it was a very difficult last couple of days was just so focusing like my boss is being a and made us hold the funeral at her convenience but uh-huh. I was there for my aunt and her memorial to spend time with her friends and hear more mm-hmm. about her. And that's what was important. Not my boss's crazy town. Right. <laughs> point yeah. <of> view. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I, and I feel like, like you said, going through that experience, there's no way that you, you can't be changed. And the deeper yep. perspective there is is kind of the gift that you gain from going through something like that. Like you said, you realize that the trivial things just don't matter. (laughs) They just don't matter anymore. Even though sometimes it's still easy to get bugged by them, but you do kind of get that 
that larger picture perspective, which is nice. Exactly. Yep. So after she passed away and you had to deal with the idiot boss who (laughs) made you plan this funeral around your schedule at work, how did you, what did you do beyond that? Did you ever quit this job? Uh, Because I'm a yes person. (laughs) (laughs) Still working on it. That's okay. We're all about being works in progress on the Yes. I was uh, a six plus year work. No, uh, I worked there for a full six years and I got hurt two years into it. So maybe another two or three years afterwards is when I left. Okay. We had gone through a baby boom in our office. It was a small office of about 15. 14 of them were women. Uh, Half of them were my age. So young marriageable age starting families so Mm -hmm. in three years we had six babies um, between us uh, between four mothers and we just had two more so that's eight babies in four years Mm -hmm. and so I was picking up a lot of slack at the office um yeah every time someone went on mat leave the boss doesn't like new people so she would just reassign work uh, rather than bring in work coverage So I counted and I left just about a year ago. And when I left, I figured I had about four to four and a half full-time employees load sitting on my desk. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. But I was trying to prove myself. I Mm -hmm. made it very clear to her that I have a plan in my head for my career. This is where I want to go. This is what I want to achieve. These are the skills that I want to learn. And so to do that, I have to get to a managerial position. And it was, right. like I said, a small shop. So there wasn't a managerial position there, but I wasn't acknowledging that to myself internally. And mm-hmm. so I just kept thinking, if I keep saying yes, I will prove to her how valuable I am. And then she can't say no when I come back for the promotion request. Mm-hmm. And this was a, a lie that I told myself for three years. And my best friend, Andy, my co-host on the show, kept trying to point out, it's not going to happen. <laughs> Uh-huh. I'm like, no, 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 you don't, you don't understand. You're, you're off on the mat. Leave. You're taking care of babies. You're, you're out of the, the pool. You don't get it. I'm telling you, it's uh-huh. gonna happen. And Andy know this, knows the situation better than I did, even then. And she's like, it's not gonna happen. And so, at the end of the day, I had my last performance appraisal with my boss, and I went in, and she was running late. So it was a six minute performance appraisal where I was told everything's going great. Yes, I know you want to be a manager. We're working on it. Now you'll have to excuse me. I have another phone call to take. Oh, no. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't uh, need constant praise and approval. That's not what this is. Like, right. I am fully honest in my performance appraisals. I acknowledge where I fall down and I acknowledge where I shine. And I had been shining for that woman for two and a half to three years. Consistent. Mm-hmm. And that was really insulting. Yeah. The original workplace harassment bully was uh, kind of coalescing power in the office as these mat leaves were happening. And she and I never really saw eye to eye on a lot of stuff. And I just decided, you know what, I'm done. (laughs) Like, Mm. I can't do this anymore. So I started looking for another job. I found one in a similar kind of area. And I went in and I, I told my boss, these are my two weeks notice. Thank you very much for the opportunity, but, but I'm done. And she was like, Oh, you can just tear up your, your employment contract with the new people. I really want you to stay. (laughs) No, (laughs) 
<laughs> you have had a chance to keep me for three years and nothing has changed but for the fact that I'm taking on more and more work and not getting paid for four and a half people's worth of work. So why right. am I going to stay? And as soon as I made the emotional break, and that's how I describe it, it was an emotional break. Like one minute I was 100% in on this job. And then the next it was, now I'm done. I'm walking away. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy and I'm fine with it. And I love it. And I'm excited and I can't wait. It's new challenges. It's new things to learn. And as soon as I made that emotional break, there was nothing she could do that was going to make me stay. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because you had finally given yourself permission. You had said, I'm going to advocate for myself here finally. Exactly. And do what I need to do for myself. And I went into this new place. And within five months, I wasn't even out of my probation period. My new boss is like, you know what? You're doing a lot more than we thought this job was going to do because it was a new position. She's like, so we're going to go and we're going to get you promoted to a manager. Within a year, <laughs> within a year, I was supervising. I have one person that I'm supervising on a specific project right now. And then just mm-hmm. today, I was talking with my boss. And I'm like, look, the next step on my professional career for me is a financial budgetary oversight. I need to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you want to take on the budgets? Oh, my God. I'm going to go talk to my <laughs> boss. We're going to get your job description altered. We're going to give you that. We'll get you the training you need. Like, done. And <sighs> I went back to my desk and I'm texting my friend. And I'm like, why did I beat my head against that wall for six years? asking yeah. and thinking I was going to get something that was never going to come when I come out and I step out into the real world away from the, that crazy town and within a year I have everything that I need and want professionally mm-hmm. and it's just like holy crap there's better out here <laughs> yeah so the lesson yeah. is if you're unhappy where you are and it's not giving you what you need get out there's better yeah. out there it's like I tell yeah. my friends like you don't owe your employer anything. No. You have a contract with them that says you give them eight hours a day and they give you pay. Beyond that, there's nothing. You owe your yeah. friends and your family and yourself your best self. And if you can't be that best self in that work environment, then it's not working. You got to go. Absolutely. And and that's what it was. I was not my best self. I could not be my best self there. I was lying to myself thinking I, I would get there eventually. And just six years of crap, just one day was like, that's enough. I'm carrying enough crap. I'm done. I'm out. Gone. And it was the best decision. This is another one of those decisions I would never have been able to make or would never have had the chance to make before the accident. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I'm now able to step back and say, yeah, it's scary. I'm going to go from being a big fish in a little pond to a little fish in a huge pond and I'm going to lose a lot of the perks that I've kind of accumulated, but it's going to be so much better. <laughs> yeah. And it has sometimes been. it takes that contrast to know, to know like, man, this job sucks so bad because yeah. I had to schedule, you know, my aunt's funeral around my job and being able to kind of look at the big picture of that and really examine that from a sideline point of view. And then, put it all together can sometimes be what you need to make that final choice of, okay, I'm totally out of here. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I'm kind of interested in, as we finish up here, if you could go back and do it differently or another way to look at this is if somebody else that's listening to this is going through something similar as you did, Mm -hmm. what kind of advice would you give as far as handling it any differently than you did or what are some of the things that you Mm. feel like you did well 
Hmm. First off, I, I wouldn't change any of it. I mm-hmm. I think you got to ride the wave that you get. Absolutely. And the only thing that can't be undone or reversed is, sorry, but taking your life, right? Like right. everything up to that point can be fixed. It might be hard mm-hmm. and uncomfortable and painful, but that is never the option because it's the irreversible option. Mm-hmm. So my my advice to someone going through something similar is yeah it's gonna suck I would not wish this on anyone but you don't know where it's gonna end it could end it's probably gonna end differently than you would have expected or thought you would have been Mm -hmm. but that ending could be so wonderful and so different and so unexpected that it's gonna be worth it conversely it could be terrible Mm -hmm. you might think that's the end it's not It's just another kind of stepping stone that you have to go through to get to your wonderful end. But there is always going to be a wonderful end. Even if that wonderful end is you go completely off the grid and live on a small desert island in like off the coast of the Galapagos, like go for it. Uh I will send you postcards like of congratulations and I hope you're happy (laughs) and I will be there to celebrate with you. But if you are unhappy, it is not your end. There is always a nut, like that's just a stepping stone. Your happiness is there somewhere. You just have to keep pushing and riding the wave until you get to it. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love the idea that if you're still unhappy, then it means you're not there yet. Exactly. It means you're still in, in the yuck and you have to figure out how to get through it. Yep. Yeah. And you might spend an entire lifetime being miserable and working for that happy ending. And if that's mm-hmm. your deal awesome. You might be someone like me who's just hard scrambler, single income households, has to support herself and two cats and (laughs) just needs to find a place where she can do that. You just keep looking for that place until you're there. And once you're there, it's, it's so, it's so much better. And it's so different than what you would have expected that it's a treat. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's still very much a part of who was always in there. You know, mm-hmm. like like this person that you are now and that you're seeing in yourself was always there. She just had to go through some stuff in order to learn that, you know. You just needed to experience some things to be able to realize these characteristics about yourself and these strengths in your own in yourself. I never thought of it that way, but you're probably right. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to give that some thought. <laughs> to me, there's like a before accident and a post accident at least, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I will definitely give it some thought to figure out like what have I carried through and what just got amplified. Yeah. 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 My guess is that those characteristics were there. They were just kind of hiding. They needed a chance to shine. True. They needed to be forced to have a chance to shine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes it takes going through really crappy experiences for us to find those Mm -hmm. well thank you so much elise for coming on the show and sharing your story i feel like so many women are going to be able to relate to the things that you went through and i think you're going to have a lot of people who relate what what did you call it as far as single perma single -single? (laughs) yes yeah Uh (laughs) i think a a lot of women will relate to that too that's yeah i'm I'm becoming more of a hardline or feminist, like bordering uh-huh. on the feminazi. Like I don't really need a man in my life. And, but like everyone's equal, but 
that's another bugaboo that I have. A lot of women just getting into relationships because they're afraid to be alone. Right. Like, yeah. That might be your crisis point. That might be your fall <laughs> and hitting yeah. the ice is when you just decide, no, I'm done. I'm going to take time to be me and by myself and I'm going to see what that's like. I love Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I think we could do time, a whole podcast on just that because I think oh. that that's such an important thing. I mean, the last guy I was dating, perfectly lovely. But as soon as I started thinking, like, how are we going to put our lives together? I realized I didn't want to. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like my life. Like, I worked really hard to get here. And I'm loving it. And I'm not lonely. If I was lonely, it would probably be a different thing. But learn to be alone. It's wonderful. I get a big mm-hmm. queen bed all to myself. I get to roll around. <laughs> I'm watching the Real Housewives TV show with nobody nagging at me because of it. Uh-huh. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. Definitely embracing wherever you're at in your life and not feeling like you have to just jump into another category of life because that's what you're supposed to do. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so if you guys want to find more about Elise, I will be posting links to her podcast in our show notes today. And once again, thank you so much for being on here. I I really appreciate it. It was my absolute pleasure. And I look so forward to hearing more of your shows because I think you're doing a very important service to all of womankind and to really everyone. I hope this lands with everyone in some way. Thank you so much. And thanks to my listeners. You guys are awesome. It's been really cool to see the numbers grow as more people subscribe and more people begin to hear about this podcast. And it's been such a privilege to realize that I am helping to make a difference in the women that are able to hear their own stories through the stories of other people and not feel so isolated and alone in their own struggles. That's the whole point of all of this. And I am so glad that it seems like we're, we're making it closer to that goal. So if you want to find out more about Imperfect Me Women, you are welcome to visit the website, imperfectmewomen.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram at the handle Imperfect Me Women. And I always welcome any comments or feedback that you have about the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please share with friends and give me a rating and uh, give me a follow. And that always helps to let other people know that this podcast is worthwhile. And it also helps me to know that you enjoyed it and that uh, I'm helping to make a difference. So thanks so much. And I will see you guys in a couple of weeks.